Please take your Bibles and open to 2 Samuel chapter 6. I'm going to go fast, so you listen fast. All right, 2 Samuel chapter 6, as we continue our study in the life of David. This morning, we'll be looking at David's second attempt to bring the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of God, back to Jerusalem. So if you missed it, last week we looked at the first half of this text, where the Ark, which is the most important artifact to the Israelites, is being brought to Jerusalem by the new king, David, to his new capital. Now, the ark is the most important relic um, in Old Testament Israel because of what it represented. It represented, first, God's covenant with his people. It contained the Ten Commandments. It was called the Ark of the Covenant. Secondly, it carried God's name before his people. It was called the Ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts. Third, this ark represented God's rule on earth. It was God's footstool, and he sat enthroned above the cherubim or the, 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 the giant angelic creatures that were attached to the lid. Fourth, the ark represented God's mercy, his salvation. As each year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies where the ark was, and he would on the Day of Atonement, and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat for the sins of the people. And finally, and for the point of our text, the ark represented God's presence among His people. This is how God dwelt among His people and led His people to the promised land. So, the ark was a symbol of God's presence, blessing, and covenant. Now, at this point in the history of Israel, listen quickly, The ark had been absent for 70 years. It had sat idle for 70 years at the home of Amenadab on the hill in between Gaza and Gezer, Geba and Gezer, all right? David now as the new king, now that David has been established as king and has a new capital in Jerusalem, he longs for the presence of God among his people. So he sets out to retrieve the ark with 30,000 chosen men and what seems to be a multitude of others. And the ark there, when David goes, is placed on a cart and it's being transported and the oxen stumble and Uzzah puts out his hand on the ark and God strikes him dead in front of all of these people. God breaks out against Uzzah in the same way he broke out against the Philistine and God strikes him down in the presence of all of these people. And it says there that David feared the Lord because God had broken out against Uzzah. And David asked this question, how can the ark of God come to me? I'm not going to bring it back to Jerusalem. And so he sends it aside to the house of this guy named Obed-Edom, a foreigner, the Gittite. And that's where we pick up today in 2 Samuel chapter 6. So I'm going to read the text with each point of my sermon to save time, okay? So here's what we're going to see, three things this morning as we look at my sermon, which is entitled, Fear, Joy, Blessing, and Shame. Fear, Joy, Blessing, and Shame. So the first thing I want you to see as David goes back to get the cart is the celebration of God's presence, the celebration of God's presence. I think that's the beginning of last week's sermon, so put celebration there instead of need. The celebration of God's presence, 
Okay, now look at verses 12 through 15, and then verse 17. It it says there, remember, David sends the ark to the house of Obed-Edom for three months. And then it says this, It was told King David, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when all those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel, that's a lot of people, brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. Now skip to verse 17. And when they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it, and David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. So here's the story. David is told here some news about Obed-Edom. Three months ago, God had struck down Uzzah. He sends it to the house of Obed-Edom. And the news report here to David is simple but staggering. David knows three things. First, Obed-Edom has surprisingly been blessed. God hasn't broken out against this foreigner or struck him down or made him break out in tumors. He's been surprisingly blessed. Second, it is the Lord who has done the blessing. It says there that the Lord has blessed Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him. Now, 1 Chronicles 15, which retells this story, says that Obed-Edom was blessed in the form of family lineage, that he ends up, because of his time with the Lord, having 70 family members who represent, who end up serving the Lord from his household. Okay. So that's a side note. But third, notice what David knows, that he has been blessed specifically, it says in the text, because of the ark of God. It is just as Hannah had prophesied earlier in 1 Samuel 2. Hannah is the mother of Samuel. And she says this early in the book, 1 Samuel chapter 2. The Lord kills and brings to life. The Lord brings down to Sheol, or death, and raises up. He brings low, and he exalts. David hears again that God can do as he pleases. God can break out against the Philistines and Uzzah, and God can bless Obed-Edom the Gittite, and whomever else he chooses. And this is all that David needs to know. David realizes that God's presence isn't for the destruction of his people, but for the blessing of his people, even though the presence of God is dangerous, as we listened to last week. So what David does is he decides that it is now worth the risk to go and get the ark, and so he returns to it, but this time David appears to have learned many things from the previous episode. All right, first he's learned that the ark must be transported according to God's instructions. Look at verse 13. In verse 13, it simply says, without any other note, those who bore the ark. Hmm, no more cart, no more oxen. There are now people carrying the ark. The ark is being carried by people. Second, he's also learned appropriate fear before the Lord. Now, the last time David came to get the ark, 
There was rightful joy and celebration, right? We read that all last week. But this time, there's also sacrifice. This time, there's also atonement. This time, there's also a recognition that there is sin that must be dealt with. When David asked back in verse 9, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? Verse 13 provides the answer. It can only come to Jerusalem and to David by atonement and sacrifice. It says there that after they had gone six steps, that they offered an ox and a fattened animal. Six steps. It seems like this is an intentional Sabbath rest, right? The Lord worked on six days and on the seventh he rested. And so they carry the ark six steps. They rest and they offer atonement. Now, some commentators say that this only happened once because that's what the text says, that after they had gone six steps, they offered a sacrifice. Others say that they did this all the way to Jerusalem, which is about nine miles. Now, if it happened every six steps, which I'm inclined towards, it would be on par with about the same amount of sacrifices that Solomon had organized for the dedication of the temple. It would be a momentous occasion, right? And by the way, the temple was built, built to house this very ark. So they make atonement. Now what's also interesting in this text is it says that David is dressed in a linen ephod, which is a priestly garment as compared to royal robes. All right? And he's deliberately here. It seems like that David is most likely dressed in a way to reflect the sacredness of this moment. He's dressed in in an ephod, a linen ephod, which was not an expensive thing. It would be what the the normal servants of the Lord and the priests would have worn. So David seems to be deliberately humbling himself before the Lord and before all the people to demonstrate that the worship of God is more important than the office of king. So as David is humbling himself before the people as a humble servant, David is basically saying this, before all of Israel, pay attention, this is the real king. The real king sits enthroned above the cherubim. I'm humbling myself here as just a normal worshiper. That seems to be what has happened. Though David is dressed in priestly attire and leading the procession, The sacrifices here are being conducted by the Levitical priests as David is now keenly aware of how all of this has to be done orderly. Now I'm going to tell you why I think that. We know this because 1 Chronicles 15, which is the parallel passage, also records this historical day and clarifies much of this. It says there, this is 1 Chronicles 15, um, 1 through 3, and then 25 through 28. Listen to what it says there. It says, And David prepared a place for the ark of God, and pitched a tent for it that's in Jerusalem. And David said this, No one but the Levites may carry the ark of God, for the Lord has chosen them to carry the ark of the Lord and to minister to him forever. Okay? So the ark is going to be carried. And David assembled all Israel at Jerusalem to bring up the ark of the Lord to its place, which he had prepared for it. Verse 25, So David and the elders of Israel and the commanders of thousands went up to bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord from the house of Obed-Edom with rejoicing. And because God helped the Levites who were carrying the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, they sacrificed seven bulls and seven rams. David was clothed with a robe of linen. Also uh, were there the Levites carrying the Ark and the singers 
and Chananiah, the leader of the music of the singers, and David wore a linen ephod. So all Israel brought up the ark of the covenant of the Lord with shouting to the sound of the horn, trumpet, cymbals, and made loud music on harps and lyres. Now you can see through this, David is learning. David here has learned the appropriate fear of the Lord as he prepares the people and, and Jerusalem for the ark's arrival. He pitches a tent for it so that no one can look at the holy things of God except for the priests. Some speculate that in the last episode that when Uzzah steadied the, car, the ark, that it was most likely uncovered, and so God had spared all of the people from looking at it and only chose to strike down Uzzah, and that would have been great grace. Now, there's a third thing David has learned here. It's the balancing of fear and joy. You can't miss in the text the emphasis on joy right beside fear and reverence. Look at verse 12. It says, David went up and brought the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David Howe with rejoicing. And then in verse 14 and 15, and David danced before the Lord with all his might. David and all the house of Israel with shouting and with the sound of the horn. So the ark, listen to this, the ark is brought to the city of David with fear. They're sacrificing animals, most likely every six steps, and rejoicing. Fear and rejoicing. David dances before the Lord with all his might. There's shouting, there is music, there's singing, there's the blasting of the ram's horn by the priest. There is joy among all the people. Now, hear me these things go together for God's people, they are inseparable in 2 Samuel 6. And what God is teaching here is the essence of worship. The episode with Uzzah at the beginning of this chapter teaches us to tremble before God's holiness. And now as David ascends Mount Zion, God's people are to dance and sing and rejoice at God's presence. And here's the lesson. Tune in to the lesson today for us. The holiness of God. The holiness and reverence of God does not suppress or dampen joy. I want you to think about that for a second. The holiness of God does not dampen joy. Quite the contrary, it should stir it up in us. It should awaken rejoicing in us. And that is a divine paradox. That is something that only God's children understand. This is why the happiest and the most joyful beings that are described in all of Scripture are those that are found in Isaiah 6 when God appeared before Isaiah in the temple. Where it says there that, that Isaiah saw, he said, above God stood the seraphim, the burning ones. And he said, each had six wings, with two they covered their face and with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. They're in the very presence of God, and they have this incredible humility where they won't even look on God. They cover their eyes, they cover their feet because they don't want to be ashamed, and they fly. And it says that without ceasing, day and night, they call to one another, and what do they say? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with His glory. These are the happiest 
creatures and all of existence. In the very presence of the holiness of God, overflowing with joy in His presence. Now here it is. The more you come to know and understand the holiness of God, the more rightly you fear and reverence Him, and the more you realize the grace of God found for us in the gospel, the more humility and joy you will have. The more humility and joy you will have as you gaze and think about the holiness of God. So, it is a lie that many people believe. It is a lie to think that knowing the holiness of God directly destroys or dampens joy. It is quite the opposite. It is sin and unholiness that dampen joy and destroy it. There's all these people that say, well, you're just... You're just all stuffy and religious and you only think about the holiness of God and you're so, you're so reserved and everything around you, um, you, everything is regal and all of this. You're fuddy-duddy, you're stuffy, you're a Bible thumper. And I go, that is a horrible representation of what you see in the scriptures where when you see everywhere people amazed at the holiness of God, they're filled with joy and rejoicing. Fear and rejoicing marry together. Secondly, so we see the celebration of God's presence. Secondly, notice the blessing of God's king. Look at verses 17 through 20. Got to go faster. It says there in verses 17 through 20, And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. And distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and cakes of raisins to each one. And all the people departed, each to his house. And David returned to bless his household. Notice how God's king blesses God's people. There's at least four ways. Four ways you can mark them. Number one, God's new king is not only leading the worship procession into Jerusalem... He's now offering burnt offerings and peace offerings on behalf of the people. Again, being done by the priests according to the law of Moses. But the point is that God's king participates and prioritizes the worship of God before the people. It is as if though David is bringing the people to worship himself. This is what God's king is supposed to do. So what's happening here is David is showing, him, showing the people by his own example the worship of God and the obedience and that the, and the, that obedience to God's commands are part of the means by which God blesses his people. God blesses his people as they worship and obey his commands. Second, David also blesses the people, notice, in the name of the Lord of hosts. Remember, this is the name that is carried on the ark itself. It's the same name that, God, that David had used before Goliath as a ruddy youth. He told Goliath, you come to me with sword and spear and javelin. I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. It's the same name. So God blesses the house of Obed-Edom because of the ark. And now David blesses the people who've brought up the ark. This blessing was meant to call upon the name of God... To protect his people. So, God, so David, as God's king, is saying here, I will protect this people in the same way that God has promised to protect his people. 
That's the blessing of God's king over God's people. But notice third, notice, notice how David treats his people. They're all treated equally. He blesses all of his people. Notice the text says he distributed food to all the people. Men and women, rich and poor. David, a man after God's own heart, is moved with the same gracious heart of God towards all his people. So the point here is that David is God's king will seek to provide for his people in the same way that God has promised to provide for his people. So, God's king doesn't bless his people simply by fighting their battles and destroying their enemies. No, God's king blesses his people by bringing them to God. That is what David is doing here. He's inviting them into God's presence by sacrifice, joy, blessing, and worship. But fourth, and you have to see this one here at the end. David brings peace to his people. Look there, it says, notice the result of this day. Then all of the people departed, each to his house. That's peace, shalom, rest, and contentment. They have worshipped, they have been blessed, and they depart in peace. Now here is what this means for us. As you think about how David blesses his people, can you not help but turn your attention to our King Jesus? Can you not think about Christ, the heir of David, our Christ and Messiah? It is Christ who brings us to God. It is Christ who is our representative and mediator. It is Christ who brings the good news of the gospel to all people. Rich or poor, high or low, young or old. Amen? It is Christ who blesses us and meets all of our needs by the riches of His own glory. It is Christ that brings us the grace of God and the peace of God by the gospel. It is the name of Christ that we are saved. It is the name of Christ that we pray. And it is by the name of Christ that we are welcomed into God's presence. And it is Christ who will safely bring us home one day. He will bring us home. Now, this historical and momentous day in the history of Israel is simply a foretaste. It is a foreshadowing of that great day when Christ will rule and reign over his people forever. And on that day, there will be peace and shalom unending as everything will be made new. And we will live, think about this, we will live forever under Christ's rule and under his blessing forever. His kingdom will have no end. David's going to die one day. And this little bit of peace and security that Israel has will be taken away. But there's coming a day when Jesus will return and his rule will be unending. And we will, we, we will sit under his blessing forever. And notice my conclusion here. The conclusion is a tale of two kingdoms. A tale of two kingdoms. Notice, let's read verse 16 that we skipped. And then verses 20 through 23. Notice how this story takes a dark turn at the end. Just as the story last week took a dark turn with Uzzah. It says in verse 16, it says, As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Mashal, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. But Mashal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David, verse, this is uh, verse 20, and said, how the king of Israel honored himself today 
uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Mishal, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all this house to appoint me as prince over Israel and, before, and the people of the Lord. And I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this. And I will be abased in your eyes. But by, my, but by the female servants by whom you have spoken, by them I will be held in honor. And Mishal, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. Now here we're given a flashback into the previous kingdom of Saul. The text says that at the, as the ark entered into Jerusalem with joy and rejoicing, Mishal, the daughter of Saul, doesn't see the significance of this moment or the joy of worship. Instead, she sees David leaping and despises him in her heart. Notice the text says three times, belaboring the point that this isn't Mishal, the wife of David. This is Mishal, the daughter of Saul. This is the same, the same wife that was David's first wife who had, been, who had saved David from Saul by letting him out through a window. The same Mishal who had been taken from him and given to another man. The same Mishal that David received back from Ishbosheth, and now it's the same Mishal looking out another window, instead this time in disdain over David's behavior. So what does she see out the window? What does she see out the window that would cause her to despise him in her heart? And the answer is that she's part of the old kingdom. She's part of the old regime. Notice what the text says here. It says, David blesses the people. Look there at the text. David blesses the people and he returns home for what reason? It says he returned to bless his home. So what's David's intent when he gets home? He's going to bless his people. He's going to bless his family. David is going home to bless his wife, his wives, and his children. He's going home to extend the same blessing back to his family. And she despises him because he was not acting very kingly. He's wearing a linen ephod, probably shaped like an apron, probably not much else. Might even be able to see through it a little bit. That's... Her, she thinks David's intent is to be vulgar in front of the ladies. That's not David's intent at all, right? David had abased himself in the eyes of Mashal. He had embarrassed her by his leaping and dancing. David had no royal dignity like her false Saul, who was always kept and put together and always in the right frame of mind and always regal and royal and everything had to be done the right way. He had embarrassed her. David says here, notice David's response. David says twice emphatically, you can underline this, you should, you should highlight this in your Bible, it was before the Lord that I was worshiping. Not before these women, not before these men, not before the priests, not before anyone else. It was before the Lord. David then says again, I will celebrate before the Lord. David doesn't care about the royal dignitaries. David doesn't care about whatever someone might think should be in order. He doesn't care about what the priests or Levites think. He is worshiping only before the Lord. And this is the key principle of worship and joy. Now here it is. Prepare yourself. Your pastor might hurt your feelings. Are you in this place this morning 
more like Mashal or more like David? When you see worship and joy and singing and dancing before the Lord, do you despise the love of others for the Lord? Do you reserve your worship and joy only for professional sports? Or rock concerts? Or partying? That's when you can be joyful and happy. Then. Do you think the church should only be the place of somber and stoic reflection? One commentator said it this way. He says, there are doubtless times to be calm. And times to be enthusiastic. We agree, there's a time for everything under the sun. But can it be right to give all our coldness to Christ and all our enthusiasm to the world? I'm only cold before Jesus, but I save my enthusiasm and joy for other things. Now listen, the point here is don't be like Michal. Don't be so close to the things of God. She's out looking in a window over worship. She doesn't go join and participate in this momentous occasion. She doesn't do that. Don't be so close to the things of God and miss out on all the joy. Don't be like those who despise the generosity and joy of Mary Magdalene as she poured out her perfume on Christ's feet because they presumably cared more for the poor. Oh, you could have sold this and fed the poor for three months. Lavishing love on Jesus. Listen, my point is that God honors those who honor him. Michal was worried about the honor of an earthly king and her father's legacy and not about the heavenly king that was coming into Jerusalem enthroned above the cherubim. Listen here. If following Jesus looks undignified before the world, who cares? Let me say that again. If following Jesus looks undignified to the watching world, who cares? Amen. Do do you hear that? I want you to press that home today. That's all I can say to you. If the watching world says you're a moron and an idiot and a fool, then you say, I'll be even more of a fool if it means pleasing my Jesus. Because I'm living before Him. Every moment before Him. That is the path to joy. This, which is why my title is so odd, this is why it ends with shame. This is to Michal's shame. Listen, those, I'll just remind you of what Jesus said, those who confess me before men, I will confess before my Father in heaven. And those who deny me before men, I will deny before my Father in heaven. The gospel should produce in us humility, joy, and worship. Let us pray. Father, I pray you'd bless the preaching of your word and you would help us this morning to recognize the blessing of our King Jesus. And Father, may we follow him with reckless abandon wherever he may lead us. No matter who follows us, may we follow him. And may our lives be a testimony of the grace and the mercy, the joy and the humility, and the fear of holiness that should mark all of our lives. We pray this in Christ's name.